Hey there, welcome back. Been listening to some great stuff. Eric Von Deniken. Gonna post that real soon. You'll have to check it out. The Guardians of the Sky, Ancient Guardians of the Sky, I think it's called. And um, yeah, it's it looks like the tomb of Osiris underneath the the pyramid. He's one of our the greatest, if not the greatest, like living archaeologists essentially let's see here giants megaliths and mysteries of the uk we listened to that as well extra track uh, here we go extraterrestrials antiquity and evolution this is part of a awakening series on gaia please do go subscribe yourself it's awesome awesome programming in fact i'm applying for a job there too Applying for lots of job and applying for sheriff. <laughs> I'm applying for a correspondent, daily correspondent, daily sheriff. For lots of jobs. But I'm geofence, fucking law, local law enforcement, so I have to run for sheriff. <laughs> so I can get them to Awakening get their fucking ancient uh, aliens panel with our guest fucking surveilling me without a warrant 24 7 audience questions and geofencing me our first guest is a world explorer and the author of several books he is also the organizer of the megalithomania conference so you know who he is which is held each year in Glastonbury he is an international lecturer who's just released a new book with co-author Jim Vieira, entitled The Giants of Stonehenge and Ancient Britain. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Hugh Newman. Hugh Newman. Welcome. That'd be fine if I got to speak at one of those. I should write a book. I should write a book about uh, history according to Trista. Writer and the author <laughs> of over 15 books that challenge the way we think about the past. History of the world. In 2008, along with the researcher Nigel Skinner-Simpson, he discovered a previously unrecorded cave system beneath the shadow of the Great Pyramid at Giza. It is a story that has brought him acclaim across the world. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Andrew Collins. Nice. Ladies and gentlemen, our next guest has been described as a female Indiana Jones, and when she's not traveling and conducting That's research me. on ancient sites, she has time to author books, conduct tour guides, utilize her amazing abilities totally as a like dowser, me. and of, oh, and of course, lecture internationally. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm not welcome a dowser. to Maria Wheatley. I want to be an archaeologist. I want to be the resident archaeologist and journalist like uh, Graham Hancock, Our Billy next Carson. Guest has traveled the world investigating ancient Man sites Lacroix. and is a principal researcher for Project Doorway. He has also spent over three decades investigating the supernatural and was a lead Graham investigator Hancock? for the TV no. show Ghost Hunters International. Oh, he is an executive producer, international lecturer, and the author of several books. His latest being co-authored with Brian Allen, entitled The Deceptions of Gods and Men. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Barry Fitzgerald. Hi. 
I thought no. I thought no, that's why I couldn't guess. Couldn't guess, man. <laughs> and our, our next guest, the final guest this evening for our ancient alien panel is an American entrepreneur, author, music artist, TV host, producer, actor, and director who specializes in the study of ancient civilizations. He is the founder of Forbidden Knowledge TV oh, yes. and the co-founder of the First Class Space Agency First class. and its subsidiary United Family of Anomaly Hunters. He is also a two-times best-selling author. Ladies and gentlemen, for his first-time yeah. appearance here in the UK, please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Billy, Billy Carson. Carson. will be asked some pre-selected audience questions, starting with Hugh Newman and then moving along. So without further ado, I'll pass you over to our digital MC, Mr. Peter Twist. Hugh Newman. Hugh. There has been much talk recently in regards to giant bones discovered near Stonehenge in the UK. If this is true, and if so, does this mean that there is a possibility that Stonehenge could have been built by giants? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Is that next question now? <laughs> yeah, I, I live in the Stonehenge landscape and I haven't found anything, bones or giants myself just yet. But who knows what's under my house? It is quite haunted, so you know, you never know. But I've been researching with Jim Vieira for a good few years on our new book, The Giants of Stonehenge in Ancient Britain. And we were always intrigued by, um, you know, the fact that many of these megalithic sites, Stonehenge included, have these giant legends, these myths at their core. In the earliest names recorded of Stonehenge is the giant dance, or in Welsh, Coria Gigantum, and various interpretations of that, which comes from the book um, History of the Kings of Britain by Geoffrey of Monmouth, and there are earlier texts which mention this giant connection as well. And the myth goes, I'll just quick, quickly summarise this, that in very ancient times, the stones of Stonehenge were brought over from the furthest reaches of Africa by a group of giants, and they were placed at a site called Kilaroos in the remote part of Ireland. They stayed there for thousands of years, and then at some point, King Ambrosius summoned his army, which was led by Uther Pendragon, to bring the stones over from Ireland to Salisbury Plain to build them in honour reconstruct them in honor of a fallen army in a great battle where many of his soldiers had been slain but here they could have moved them the 15,000 strong and they couldn't move the stones from ireland they tried really hard they couldn't budge a stone and so they had to call on the services of merlin the magician or the wizard to go over there and he was said to have moved all the stones on his own and there were two or three interpretations. One story said he used gears, levers, and engines, and others says, says he used magic and sleight to bring them over. Whichever way he did it, they got to Salisbury Plain and they were reconstructed in the exact configuration. In fact, the earliest depiction ever of Stonehenge is from a version of the History of Kings of Britain that came out a bit later that has Merlin with King Ambrosius and what looks like a 16 to 18 foot tall giant lifting one of the lintels, one of the top stones, into place. And so this giant connection with Stonehenge always intrigued us. And then we found that in 1719, myself and Jim came across a report of 
a nine-foot-four skeleton being found in a giant's grave, a mound, near Salisbury. Now, Salisbury is the nearest town to Stonehenge. It's just a few miles south, and it's part, really, of the greater Stonehenge landscape. And this really intrigued us. We found two or three accounts of this, and we know exactly where it was buried, but it's been built over now by the local art centre. But then we found this other account, which, which really got us, because this is from 1508, and it was witnessed by Sir Thomas Elliot, who was a well-known scholar. Um, he was an MP for Cambridge. He also wrote the first Latin dictionary. And he witnessed a 14-foot, 10-inch skeleton found in the general area, just, just south of Salisbury, again, within the Stonehenge landscape. A 14-foot, 10 is really tall. I mean, if you meet someone who's 7-foot, it's pretty impressive. So when you meet someone who's 14-foot, 10, or at least find their skeleton. And he was buried in this huge oak log coffin. It had a book with a strange inscriptions on it that could never be deciphered, and they found this quite large metal disc made of tin and lead that again had the same kind of obscure inscription in it, but no one could decode it. All of these have now disappeared. But before they did disappear, they were witnessed not only by Thomas Elliot and his, his well-known father, but also by John Leland um, and various other well-known scholars, almost like celebrities, uh, academics at the time. So they, they wouldn't really make this up. Christopher. And St. Christopher, if you look, he was a giant Canaanite warrior from the Bible lands. And he was said to have carried Jesus on his shoulder when he came over. And this is what he became famous for. And he decided to, you know, you know kind of worship Jesus and God and all this kind of stuff. But so you've got these, all these giant connections, even with the Bible lands in this particular area. But I must admit, this is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the giant discoveries made, especially in relation to megalithic sites in ancient Britain and Ireland and Scotland and Wales everywhere. We have over 250 accounts with legends that match the discoveries being made in the ground. And so there's a real story here, and I hope this has given you a quick introduction, and hopefully this answered the question. <laughs> Andrew Collins. Andrew, do the lost underworld of catacombs beneath the Egyptian pyramids show any evidence that the Egyptians built them? And if so, why were they left unexplored for around 200 years? Well, that's a big one. Um, who's heard of the Hall of Records?
150 yards, you know, metres, and we, we eventually had to stop. We went back there in all four times, but we had to report it as well, which we did to the, the local ecological um, authority. And eventually, we had to present it all to Dr. Zayef Awas, who was the, the big boss of the Supreme Council of Antiquities. And he just denied it. He said, you've discovered nothing, you know. And we said, no, no, we have. We've got the photographs to prove it. Just a few months later, right, he's on this TV show, um, which was called, um, I can't find him, I can't remember what it was, was it? Um, uh, you know, this, this thing where they were following him around, this reality show. We're actually showing him going into these caves and discovering them himself and avoiding all these bats flying around um, and saying this was the most incredible experience he'd ever had on, on the Geese of Plateau, um, which is just absolutely bizarre. But the whole thing was written up in a book that I wrote, uh, was published in 20, not, uh, 2009, called Beneath the Pyramids. Unfortunately, it's not uh, available anymore. But this all got me into serious problems eventually. Um, and I, I, if I'd have gone back to Egypt for a few years, I would have got arrested. <laughs> and that's without even talking about what happened in Turkey. But that's all the story. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, um, so, but my good friend Rod, uh, um, Robert Rubaus, you know, the, the author of the Orion Mystery, knew all the right people and sorted it all out. So we can find, I can finally go back to Egypt with, you know, with my head held high. So that was it. But those, those caves, you can see them on radar images, and they go underneath the second pyramid. Not the Sphinx, not the Great Pyramid, the second pyramid. And it's said that underneath the second pyramid is the tomb of Hermes, and that within his hands he holds something called the Emerald Tablet, and that they themselves are supposedly symbolic of these great secrets Yay. that are to be found within the Hall of Records when finally you get to that. But I'd like to think that we've come Hermes, closest to actually Hermes. entering inside those wow. Hall of Records. So wow. basically, that's my story Very of, uh, of Egypt. But um, just one of the many adventures I've been on. So thank you. Awesome. Yeah. That's fucking awesome news. Maria Wheatley. Maria. It has been written that decades ago, a most unusual skeleton was excavated close to Stonehenge. Its description was said to be very similar to Lloyd Pye's famous star child. How true is this, and why was it described as unusual? Well, there's many different types of beings or civilizations associated with Stonehenge. There are giants like Hugh describes, but there are also other types of civilizations that were much smaller and very elfin-like. And I'll be describing that in my talk. My research, I really like the Neolithic era, and actually ancient times of Stonehenge. That's going back to 3800 BC and beyond that. And they built and constructed long bands, causewayed enclosures, and cursus monuments. They were an incredible type of people because I just I discovered that they had long skulls, elongated skulls, and the femur bones of these people were only up to 16 inches, which makes them really small, the opposite of the giants. 
So they were really about sort of four feet pygmy. eight for the women and five feet, five feet four for the males of the Neolithic black period. black pygmies in New Guinea. Now, in that research, I noticed that there's a long barrow. It's not on the map. It's on a very ancient map that is in view of Stonehenge. And in that barrow was described the most unusual burial ever. It's unprecedented. And it has an no, anything cool like there. it in the British Isles. So if you imagine that in the Neolithic, they would take a whole body and put it in what's called the flexed position, that's in like the fetal position, and tie it up. Or they would deflesh the person and take the skull and the long bones, and sometimes a whole person as well, and place those into megalithic chambers. That's a Neolithic burial. Very common. Uh, but near Stonehenge, things get weird, <laughs> and they really do. It's an energetic landscape. It's got ley lines flowing through it. It's got aquifers beneath it. It's a high-res place, and that's why English heritage don't want you to touch stones, because you will get a download, as I have and many other people before. In fact, in my presentation, I'm going to tell you lie after lie after lie. That the Ministry of Work has done to Stonehenge. They've hidden stones. They've defaced them, which is a crime. And one stone was stolen by the royal family. But back to the Neolithic era, for example, in this unusual mound, there were people with long skulls, but short people with long skulls, in a circle tied together, and in the center of that circle of beings was this very unusual skull that was described. It stopped the excavators in their tracks, and they literally looked at it and said, what is this? And so they wrote a report, and that report was re-evaluated in the 1930s, and it said that there was a skull, and it had um, eyes on top of its head, very similar, like it was said to a pies uh, skull, but more than that, it was the whole skeleton that they... Hmm. They don't want you to hear this, apparently. Better say what we got so far. This is extraterrestrial sensitivity. Describing. And they were saying the rib and cages, but well, they were very strange. But because everybody else was holding it around. I gave that report to Ted, Dr. Evolution. Ted Robinson, who worked with Lloyd Pye on The Star Child. And I said, you tell me what's going on. You worked with Lloyd Pye. He said it's an identical type of uh, being. So I think there's lots more going on in this Stonehenge landscape than we really know about. And it's people that, you know, do the investigations that find there's different civilizations. And I think the different phases of Stonehenge, because an archaeologist will say, oh, uh, it took 1,000 years to build Stonehenge, and it had feature after feature, and it was altered, and it was altered. I think it was built originally by the Neolithic people and altered by different civilizations that came through. And even in the kind of prehistoric times, uh, Stonehenge has been evolving. But one thing I really do think about, about the long-skulled people, because I had the pleasure of going to Cambridge University to really study and view the skull. And anybody who knows me that knows I'm a bit of a druid, and I can be a bit of a witch as well. And so what I did, I kind of vibed the curator to leave the room. 
I was kind of vibing and vibing and vibing. And then at Cambridge, you think maybe have sophisticated communication systems. No, it was an old-fashioned pager that went off. And she said, you don't mind if I just leave the room for a little while, do you, Maria? I said, no, of course not. And then I had the... It was a real pleasure to feel the skull. And it was almost like the chakra system of the upper part was still alive and still beating Whoa. and saying kind of like energy was coming out. And so there seemed to be like two crown chakras as well. So I think these star beings, these elongated skulls, sensed the environment differently. Okay? So, um, I you call it those Robbie Hale well, don't you? Robert came with me to Avery Henge. It's wonderful. Hugh lives near Stonehenge. I live near to Avery Henge. We're megalithians. <laughs> and, uh, and so we did some testing on some stones because I always uh, said, as did many other doubters, that standing stones can equate to the chakra system. There's five above and there's two below if the stone is in the ground. So two are flowing through the earth and five are above. And when these were measured, again by Rodney and uh, David Webb much later, said that they resonated to 18 hertz. Well, we hear at 20 hertz. I think the elongated skull people and the star child heard the stones and they listened to the landscape. And we're visual people, so we kind of visualize things. So for me, it was a totally different experience of the landscape and of, you know, the monuments. If you imagine monuments. in the Neolithic, some amazing monuments were built by these people, and maybe under direction of the Star Child, maybe under the direction of a ruling elite that I will show you in my presentation uh, tomorrow. So, so much wrapped up uh, into, into the land. And one of their monuments stood in front of Stonehenge, and it was called the Cursus Monument, recorded by William Stukeley. And who was an antiquarian of the 18th century. And he described it as being a huge, maybe six to ten feet tall building. Imagine that chalk block, like almost like kind of blocks of chalk that was smoothed off. And it went on for nearly two miles in front of Stonehenge in a rectangular shape. Sadly, that got ploughed out. And that would have had very acoustic sounds, some people would uh, speculate on. And even the chambers that these Neolithic people went into, it's been recorded that they too have acoustic properties. So for me, the adventures haven't ended with my discovery of Stonehenge. They've only just begun. Yeah. Larry Fitzgerald. Larry. Do you think the mythology from our ancient past still presents itself in current times? Yes, um, I do. And, and I think there is a lot to be learned from our ancient mythology and folklore. And briefly, I was speaking with some of our panel members um, today in, in regard to this. There is, a, there is a, a real value in a lot of the, message, the messages and stories that they left behind. Um, and how that brings us forward into how we examine things today. And as I said, it has great value. But outside of that, we also need to look at the proof. What proof did they leave behind? We need something more substantial. We, it's, 
it's not so much, I think, we, um, um, I, I think, um, possibly, it's a case of more substance. That's what the people demand today, especially yeah. in today's climate. We need direction. And our ancestors have truth. lived thousands of years, and they have left this direction truth. within the stone. And there is value within the stone. And in fact, even from, from, from a, a really weird circumstance of the high strangeness and everything else, it brings us back to look at the stone. And this goes right across the board from, from ufology and the folklore um, into, into various other fringe research fields. We see our attention being brought back to the stone and the value in the stone. Harmonics and um, archaeology is now developing. We're now understanding these areas of value and how they resonate and how we resonate with those areas. But not only is that an audible um, circumstance, we also have the light that penetrates those areas, that, that the, the, those ranges of, of light that enter the chambers signify the time in which these places were activated. And so this all correlates together. Then we have to also consider some of the substances that our ancestors were also taking. And what were those substances? Now we can see and understand now with the work that I've been doing back in Ireland that uh, a lot of the Acadian um, um, wall art that was depicted, we now understand what that fruit is, how that fruit is, bro uh, how that fruit is broken down, and how that resonates with us when we consume it. And what is it that they were actually communicating with? This is something we have to understand. We lived, our ancestors lived in a setting where there wasn't a lot of it. Yet they took the time to build these amazing structures. That's, that's taking away from the ability to live. So there was a great importance behind these places. And this is something we have to reconnect to. We have to reconnect to our spirituality. Because these places were built under spirituality. We have to process and understand that, which is something we have really veered off from um, in, the, in the present sense. So now we're really starting to understand what they were doing, how they were doing it, but more to the point, what were they communicating with? And there lies a very dangerous topic, and um, which I'll be speaking about tomorrow. So what is it that we're communicating with? What is behind the veil? So our ancestors have left us a lot within, within the, the stone structures. It's up to us to decipher it, to understand it, and give something more substantial that gives us presently a grounding to understand what's coming ahead. And that's very, very important. Billy. Throughout Egypt, there are seemingly examples of rock being cut and bored out by ancient machine tools. Do you believe such ancient civilizations possess such equipment? And if so, what do you think happened to all of this equipment? Mm -hmm. well, that's, a, that's a fantastic question. Um, <laughs> it's one of those questions that makes you want to scratch your head because I've been to Egypt, I've been to a lot of ancient sites around the world, and what's interesting is you can begin to see the same type of tool markings on some of these megalithic structures. And so now you have to come to the assumption that if you see it more than once, it's circumstantial evidence. And so when you have enough circumstantial evidence, you have a case, right? And so you begin to build this case on the fact that there were these 
tools, advanced tools of some type that were able to cut and bore these incredible stones and quartz uh, granite and everything else. And it, it, it makes you want to ask the question, well, if you have these tools, then what in the world happened to them? But when you look at some of these structures and you, you, uh, if you take a compass to some of these ancient stones, you find out that when you put the compass close to the stones, especially in, in areas of Egypt, that sometimes the compass moves away. It, it spins away from where it is, what, what direction you're standing in. And that's another curious thing is somehow the magnetic field around the atoms been altered or changed? Has it flipped? What kind of tool can be used to cut stone and at the same time alter the atomic structure of the actual stone as well? Great, great questions. And so I personally believe that in ancient times, these uh, advanced beings, they call them the Naturu in ancient Egypt. The Naturu in Mesopotamia, they call them the Anunnaki, the Sumerians did. Uh, they're, they're named in the Enumi Elish and the Seven Tablets of Creation. Uh, and all around the world you find these cultures have these different names for these beings. But in my opinion, some beings came here, some advanced beings. I don't think that they were gods as in the creator of the universes. I do believe that people deified them because they were mystified by their capabilities. They became cargo cults worldwide, around, centered around these advanced beings. But they had advanced tools and technology. When I went to uh, Cambodia, I think it was 2018, uh, one of the locals that had been there for generations, his family had been there for generations, told me that they camped, the Angkor Wat was poured into place. They poured it into place. And when you look at some of the stone there around that structure, it does look like liquefied concrete. Pretty interesting. And so there obviously was a very, very advanced culture, in my opinion, in the ancient past not taking anything away from our ancient ancestors because they themselves have been taught and developed uh, different levels of advanced technology. But just my personal experience and from dealing like, especially with the ancient Egyptian texts and the language of life uh, and learning from that culture directly, dealing and talking with local guys, homegrown guys, generations of pyramid families, you know, it looks to me as if uh, these Nakuru who came down at the time of Zeb they were claimed to have turned mud into a kingdom. These are sky gods that came to Earth. Now, sometimes people scoff and say, well, you know, why couldn't human beings just do all this stuff? I'm not saying that human beings didn't do all this stuff. I'm saying some type of a person or a hominid, because I don't really think that a lot of these uh, advanced beings look like little green men with antenna. I think we look a lot like them, and they look a lot like us. Potentially, probably even our cousins. Because I kind of believe now, after visiting Australia and talking to the Aboriginal elders, that Earth is most likely some type of abandoned seed colony, and we were seated here. And so these beings had the capability of turning mud into a kingdom. And wherever you look around the world, we see the same exact story of this, these advanced beings showing up after a catastrophe and helping re-kickstart civilizations. Now, where have, where have the tools gone? Where have this, this technology gone? If you look at uh, the way that the, the stones were, were put together and the types of materials in the stones, the types of stones that were put up to create these megalithic structures, you find that they were created to stand the test of time. Now, if you take a piece of human or man-made technology and put it next to a pyramid and it go away and come back 10,000 years later, that, that, that technology that you put down next to the pyramid is going to be just. All right, so we know that for a fact because we experience rust and everything else here just in a few years. If you have a car near the ocean,
uh, or you have a car that drives in a lot of uh, salt when it's in the winter months, like in New York City or whatever, the salt eats away and rusts out your vehicle. So we know that uh, technology disintegrates over time. And so I think some of it has disintegrated over time, as well as the fact that I believe after the last pyramid war, uh, that a lot of the technology was stripped out of a lot of the pyramids and temples and taken away. A lot of the capstones of the majority of the pyramids, I believe that they were taking off and removed purposefully to prevent people from accessing the energy source or the power source or the technology, whatever that finishing piece of the structure accomplished. I believe that that was Turn taken it into away a well massive generator. Uh, and if the purpose of Power that was to prevent us from being able to uh, expedite our progress with technological advances. Uh, and so I believe that a lot of it was taken away. And some of it, to be Probably honest, like time travel. <laughs> disintegrated over time, a massive amount of time. And that's my personal experience and personal understanding of it. giant skeletons had extra digits and even two rows of teeth. Do you believe these to be real? And if so, do you think these variations in such skeletons are a normal process of evolution? Okay, so this is, this is a weird one. This is something we've come across, especially really mainly in North America. You can see that here. These all these accounts. We've got an entire chapter devoted to this in our book, Giants on Record where there are reports of what are called double rows of teeth. Sometimes there are triple rows of teeth in some of the jaws, as we found in Amelia Island in Florida, reported in the mid-1800s. But we have about 30, maybe possibly 50 accounts, as some of them are quite unusual descriptions, of this phenomena in giant skeletons dug up from the mounds and from the deserts and even from megalithic sites in North America. Now, sometimes you just have a few extra teeth, like supernumerary teeth, or it could be fully fledged hyperdontia, which is like extra teeth, abnormal growth in the mouth. But these, some of these accounts are very strange because they have clear two rows of teeth in each jaw. Now, this is something that has been noted, is you do get genetic throwbacks in modern times, but usually these appear in very, very tall people. And I've had, since the book came out, since we did our TV show about this, but lots of people contacted us. One of the things we did in the TV show was um, interview Dr. Shara Bailey, of um, a New York University, who's a dental anthropologist, and we showed her all these accounts, any photos we had, and she was like, absolutely stunned. And what she realized, and the only real explanation how this could keep happening, is there's some genetic line which could be connected with a very early ancestor of humans, perhaps a Denisovans, we don't know yet, and these are genetic throwbacks occurring, and they are kind of bred, especially in North America, between elite groups to maintain these giant genes. And it got to a point where extra rows of teeth would be created, almost like just to fill up the gap in the giant jaws that are occurring in North America. But we have other accounts. We have, we have stories from um, Ireland. Uh, we have like the mythological stories of some of the giant kings had double rows of teeth. They extra digits on each hand. Um, we have stories of, we actually have accounts, one from Dorset where the, and one from uh, the Outer Hebrides where they've, in Britain where they've actually found teeth in the jaws of certain individuals and we feature that in our latest book. 
But we also have the digits, the extra fingers and toes. Now this is an anomaly my, my co-author, a good friend, Jim Vieira, is the real expert on, and there's a, he's done a whole lecture about this. And he's found this in more giant accounts than normal-sized human accounts. So again, we seem to be finding this kind of genetic throwback to very, very early ancient times. And again, we have mythological figures from the Bible, like I think it's the fourth descendant of Goliath was said to have had six fingers and six toes. Some accounts from the Bible have extra rows of teeth in the mouth, like the giant of Gath. And there's other stories from all over the world where we find this anomaly. You also find petroglyphs with like six fingers carved or painted at certain places like in North America and other areas. And so the explanation is quite a hard one to decipher, but it appears, as I said, like there's kind of genetic throwbacks linked with these giant genes. And one of these giant genes that we looked into is something called the AIP gene. This is a gene that's at least been recorded and traced back at least 2,500 years. And this is the area where Charles Byrne, the Irish giant, and many other kind of relatively modern giants over the last few hundred years have come from. And it still happens today. The people are being born with this AIP gene in them. Now, this isn't quite the same as acromegaly or gigantism. And you do, you're quite well proportioned with this AIP gene, unlike with these other uh, pituitary conditions. And some people have even suggested this gene may have originated from North America, where we find the giants. Originally, I think like America is actually the giant kind of capital of the planet. And so the fact you've got this occurring in uh, this part of Ireland, and you have all these legends of these giant races, like the Tuatha Danan, the Fomorians, and others, who again, some of them were said to have extra fingers and extra teeth. I think there's a connection there. I think myths do record elements of what was actually going on in prehistoric times so there's more research really needs to be done about this double rows of teeth kind of phenomena because we've presented this we've shown it to academics and as usual when you're looking at unusual things like this there's very little interest from that side of the kind of um, area of research so hopefully more will come out on that but for now if you know anyone with double rows of teeth or extra fingers please get in touch <laughs>
the builder, the traditional builder of the Great Pyramid was Khufu. And he was one of the kings of the fourth dynasty. Uh, and of course, um, you know, his uh, immediate descendants were responsible for the construction of the other two main perfect pyramids, as they're called, on the Giza Plateau. Uh, which is the second pyramid, you know, the, the pyramid of Khafre, uh, and of course the third pyramid, the pyramid of Menkara. Well, you know, you've got these three incredible monuments, and I think that the King's Chamber in particular obviously was meant to be the, the, the heart of this, this ascension machine. And I think that there is a very strong possibility that the idea was to almost project the soul of the pharaoh into some kind of sky world, um, virtually through the actual apex of the actual um, pyramid itself towards some kind of celestial or cosmic destination. Now, obviously, you'll be aware of uh, my good friend uh, Robert Bouval's ideas to do with um, Orion. Um, but there are other alternatives as well relating to the alignments of the three great pyramids of Giza. And those that have read my books like Cygnus Key and the Cygnus Mystery will know that Cygnus is also a very, very important constellation associated with ancient Egypt. And what, it, and what Cygnus represented, well, I mean, Cygnus in Europe, Euro and Eurasian tradition is essentially a big bird, basically. Um, usually a swan, but it could also be a vulture. Uh, and it's, you know, a sky figure. It's up there in the sky and it's identified by different cultures. But in ancient Egypt, Cygnus, the stars of Cygnus, of which the brightest star is, is the, the star Deneb, are actually on the Milky Way, where the Milky Way breaks into two. And the Milky Way in ancient Egypt was seen as the body of a goddess known as Nuit. You often see this picture of this naked lady arched <laughs> over the earth, and that's Nuit. And she was personified in the night sky as the Milky Way. Well, if you see that as a literal impression of this goddess, the position where um, the Milky Way splits in two, where the Cygnus stars are located, was her womb. And obviously beneath that, obviously her legs were where the Milky Way splits in two. And this area of the sky, this womb, if you like, of the goddess, was seen as an entry and exit to the sky world in amongst many different ancient cultures around the world. I mean, for instance, in Native American tradition, you have what's known as the path of souls, death journey. Uh, and this was a journey that was adopted by at least 30 to 40 different tribes, all with variations of exactly the same journey into the afterlife. And essentially what would happen is that at death, either the deceased or the shaman going into an altered state would make a leap of faith towards the horizon at a particular time where they would enter the Milky Way via one of the key stars in the constellation of Orion. That's why Orion is so important in ancient Egypt because it was like the first bridge, the first doorway into 
the next world and the soul would then travel along the Milky Way until it reached the Cygnus constellation and then it would be either just um, to be righteous and it would go into the afterlife or if not it would be reincarnated or the soul would actually descend into oblivion. And this is the kind of the path of soul's journey and the actual Milky Way was that path of souls. It was a road Sickness where exactly the same thing she may be the judge. In ancient Egypt. I mean, Graham Hancock talked all about this in his last book, America, before. But it's something that, you know, those that have read my books like Sickness Mystery, Sickness Key will be very, very much familiar with that. And the pyramids, the three pyramids at Giza are perfectly aligned uh, to the three main stars of Cygnus, the so-called winged stars of Cygnus, the bird in its form as, um, well, in, in Egypt, it's probably uh, something like a hawk or a falcon, basically. And so those pyramids were, were specifically placed, specifically aligned, so that the soul could travel first to Orion and then journey on into the afterlife via the womb of the goddess Nyrit. And it's from within this that the soul was reborn into the afterlife, into the second life, um, you know, the, the, the field of reeds beyond the physical world. So that's it, really. So in, in summary, the Great Pyramid and its neighbours, of course, was the end product of a lot of uh, evolution that had gone on in Egypt for many thousands of years. But ultimately, it's an ascension machine to project that soul into the afterlife. Maria Wheatley. Maria, locations of Salisbury Plain in the UK are utilised by the British military forces and are considered off-limits to the general public. Maria, do you think that there is a reason for such military bases in specific locations near to Stonehenge? Of course. Stonehenge is a power centre, the biggest power centre in the British Isles. And close to it, if you imagine, Stonehenge is right on the periphery of the Salisbury Plain. The Salisbury Plain itself, and it is a military establishment, is 25 miles roughly by 25 miles. You can't go on to some parts of the Salisbury Plain, you're denied access. So it's likened to Area 51. But more than that, the Salisbury Plain is an area that has up to 2,500 prehistoric monuments therein. That's a lot of monuments and some of the most interesting, intriguing and fascinating burials are in that zone. So it is very difficult. You have to navigate the plane. You have to work out if there's a red flag flying, and if it is, you can't enter it. They use live ammunition, and it goes right over the heads, uh, over some of the roads, as it were, as you're, you're travelling along it. But as well, Stonehenge is often associated with time distortions. And I do past life regression, and I had some very interesting cases come my way from the military who said that they'd parked up their car along a trackway very close to Stonehenge. And they'd had uh, 
a ciggy, a couple of cigarettes and a couple of tins of beer and, you know, they're having a good time. And then come on, what they saw was these fans. lights come out of what they thought was the ground near some barrows. And these lights came towards the car and almost danced around it quite hypnotically. But they're from the military. And they realised they could triangulate and, and do this. And so they thought, oh, it was, you know, just one of those things. And they'd heard of things like earth lights, bowls, and that could have answered what had occurred with these lights. So they go back to Lark Hill. And I know there's a chap here today from, uh, from Lark Hill that I've spoken to. So they go back. And... Then they are under military arrest because they've been absent without leave for a few days. So, and that was uh, in got out of a past life uh, regression, but they felt that it had happened anyway. So I think Stonehenge can distort time. And I think that's what the military is interested in as well. And again, if we look beyond the lay, if we look beyond earth currents for one moment, and what is beneath Stonehenge that would interest people like the military? What's beneath Stonehenge are two massive aquifers. One is an aquifer of groundwater that you get at places like the Giza Pyramid, for example. So you've got a large body of water. But as an esoteric water diviner, I know that there's another type of water that I've often spoke about in lectures. And that's the water born within Gaia. And it's independent of rainfall. And it produces a spiral pattern. Now, water has memory. Okay, so I think uh, how some people can work with that is it is the Akashic record of place. It has information stored in it. And also uh, a little known fact about. Can you, what happens if you drink it? Stonehenge is the first stone to be raised wasn't, it was buried. So the first stone went down into the ground and then a stone was placed upon it. And so I think the military are interested in Stonehenge because it has a lot of different types of energy. It's also an Akashic record. And the energies, when you start to look at how they flow into and out of a monument, is very interesting. Because at, Stonehe at Stonehenge, they emerge. Now, when you have Earth energies emerging uh, round by the altar stone, incidentally, you have a lot of power. And it also is associated with vortex energy. And the military, you only have to look to, you know, uh, country after country after country. And there's always a little formula. Vortex, ancient sites, military. So it's not just Stonehenge. It's all over the world. Then when you start to look at how the military bases surround Stonehenge is very interesting as well, because you have, it must be about sort of seven miles away, you have our nuclear biological testing center, Horton Down. Now that's right on a straight lay going out from the, the, uh, the Stonehenge environs. So it seems that This is Extraterrestrials, Antiquity, and Evolution. Join your favorite renowned experts in this introductory panel discussion for the Awakening Conference in Blackpool, UK. Explore our world's greatest mysteries from extraterrestrial to Egypt. 
elongated skulls to giant skeletons learn from leaders in the field about these unfolding secrets and what they mean for humanity's past, present and future. Featuring All of their military establishments are linked in with lay energy as well, that I believe that they are utilizing in, in ways that uh, they, they do try to keep quiet about it. And I think they just, like I said earlier, they distort time as well. As many of people on this panel know, and I've been to Stonehenge year after year, and I've been to Stonehenge decade after decade. And in 2010, I was really excited because I actually was with Hugh uh, in 2010 at, at Stonehenge you know, with Michael Tellinger. And I remember I was, I was bigging it up, as, as we do. And uh, I was saying to the, the people that were the participants, it's coming into its power. And a decade and a decade before, it like ripples through time and it can get. Dang. Anyway, so featuring Hugh. High res, and it was coming into its moment of power. And that means if you go by the greater trilithon, for example, you feel its energy field as you're approaching that stone. And that can change your consciousness, your spirituality, even, I believe, your, your past, past karma. So it's coming into its power. And I thought, wow, what a day this is going to be. And so we got, if you remember, Hugh, we were told to sort of line up like school children and told you can't touch the stones. And from that moment forth, when Stonehenge could have been a place, well, when you go to these ancient sites, it's the place that can change you. Now, imagine Avery Henge, the world's largest stone circle, can have up to 2,000 people comfortably therein. And you all got the same intent, the same spirituality. You're on the power lines and it can bang, switch people on like that. 2,000 people at any one time. And that's what I think these ancient sites were being used in a good way of increasing people's spirituality. And I think the military kind of dampens that down, uh, greatly so. And as well, with vortex energy patterns, each type of earth energy releases a pattern. It's like a signature in a way, and we can decode those signatures. And so if you go to uh, other ancient sites, they will have particular signatures. Stonehenge is like a chapter. And like I said, it has energies emerging, like the cobra coming up out of the land. They're alpha lines. And it has uh, earth currents that terminate their omega lines. And so it has everything. And if we learn to work with these different energies in different ways, we can co-create on an alpha. We can release on an omega type of energy. So I think, you know, in its most positive guys. Stonehenge was the teacher of the people. Stonehenge was the wisdom keeper of the past. And that's what the military know. And that's why they have up to 16 military sites surrounding Stonehenge. I hope that answers the question. Yeah. Barry Fitzgerald. Barry, on occasion, do you think folklore and mythology can help bridge the gap between our ancestors? That is, until science catches up. Yes, I, I do think it's, it's useful. And like the, the last question that came through, I do think that there is some um, direction that we can gain from that. Um, 
But there's also there are also um, places that we have to physically endure. I, I find from from that originate within the mythology and the folklore. And like many on the panel who have gone to these locations, there there is great learning to be delivered by doing so. And there have been some locations that have scared the absolute bejesus out of me um, when when it comes to it. And one of those locations was back in my own home island. And that place we, we labeled the Island of the Dead, this was a place of oracle. And like the, 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 the oracle of Delphi, this was a place that you went to to gain the knowledge from beyond the veil. Now, we heard many stories of these places and, and investigating a lot of these locations around the world. You go, oh, yeah, 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 I've heard this all before. And you go and you have your experience and you leave somewhat deflated. This did not deflate. This scared the hell out of me. Um, we completely underestimated what we were about to step into. And it was when dusk started to settle that the signature of this island changed. And we became aware that we're not in Kansas anymore. Uh, because leading up to that particular point, we had church officials that were telling us, I don't know why you're going to that island. There's nothing to find. Yet we had the ancient maps that were showing that, no, there, there are structures here. Oh, no, those maps are wrong. You'll find nothing. Well, we found what was on those maps when we got went to that island. But the problem was that the only place that we could stay, now, we may have forgot to mention that to the church that we were going to stay over, but the only place that we could stay were these pits. Now, this island was not lived on, hadn't been lived on for for hundreds, hundreds of years. Yet these pits, there was very little growth within. It was like the vegetation refused to grow within these pits. Now we were walking through vegetation that was over our heads at times, yet we entered into these areas where the pits were. And they, they were the only places that we could camp. And it was during that experience of staying in those pits that I was introduced to this aspect of Neolithic spirituality that I certainly was not prepared for. But that, the experience that I had there, and I can tell you, there are many people that will head to the Amazon and they'll drink ayahuasca and they'll do everything else. That is not enjoyable to me. I do not like the idea of, 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 of purging myself from both ends. That is not what I'm into. I did have a cup of tea when I was on this island and I had the experience of my life. Uh, it was so powerful. It's a very, very powerful experience. In fact, the church tried to harness the power of that island. They couldn't do it. They destroyed it. And they duplicated the island on another island on the same lake. Now, you can still go there today. I'm going to swipe for credit card for $80. You can stay on that island and experience the same structures that were built on the original island. But yet you can see the original island. You won't have the same experiences from that place. That powerhouse is still there in a remote part of Ireland. Um, and it was a place, even in the medieval period, they knew that you went there for your experience to learn from what was coming through that veil. Very, very dramatic place. Very, um, the, the power of that place I can't even express. I don't have the language to express just what it exudes. But it was very, very dramatic. And, and I think that, that our ancestral history 
it can give us knowledge. And I have to say that being initially after my first experience, I was resigned on the bus. I got the back here that place. And I left it for, I must admit, maybe seven, eight years before I decided, okay, I'm going to go back. But I'll go back into LA. And, and I was back. And uh, it's a very, very dangerous place in itself. So you can't take a motorboat. You have to paddle. Um, and uh, we went back to the island. And this was the first place that we were able to see where where this tunnel complex was. It is this cave complex. What was left of it, it was the first time ever that we were using technological equipment that we could record that distortion of time you spoke about. We got to see it for the first time. That this location has an effect on time. We were looking at this bridgeway between both places and scientifically we could see it and that was exceptionally important still scared the hell out of me but it was it was a place i i'm aware of and i trust now that the, the power of that place is so immense and it lifted me and changed my paradigm of what i thought our world was and what our ancestors were to be teaching us so yes there is a lot to be learned from our ancestors and our science is catching up
orbiting our sun. I'm going to be talking about this in my uh, uh, lecture tomorrow, so please don't miss it. But I'm going to bring forth a lot of the evidence right there to you. Where astronomers now have finally discovered that there is a star with a solar system uh, orbiting our sun right now today. And so all the history books are being rewritten, all the astrophysical books are being rewritten mm -hmm. for college uh, and, and studies because we now know that there is another star system. And so as that star orbits our sun, they create a breakaway speed. So it speeds up and it slows down. It needs more breakaway speed. It speeds up and then it slows down. Now this is over thousands of years. And so what happens over about a 4,200-year period, uh, there is another mini-solar system with a round dwarf star, which is got the same mass as our sun, but much, much smaller, a much more dimmer sun that you can't see with the naked eye. Only with, if you go into the, uh, the telescope system like uh, WorldWideTelescope.org, you can put the telescope into true mass infrared mode, and then you can, uh, right now, if you go into the constellation of Leo, right by the lower right corner of the constellation of Leo, and you zoom in, you'd be able to see this brown dwarf there. It's uh, coming out of Leo, and it's orbiting our sun. It's way far beyond the orbit of Pluto, but still inside the inner Oort cloud area. So it's a part of our solar system. It's not, uh, you know, a captured star from somewhere else. It's in the same vicinity, uh, way out there, but still orbiting our sun. And what's interesting is uh, this this uh, brown dwarf is giving off gravitational waves. Something I had predicted uh, over 10 years ago. And was laughed at and scoffed and told I was crazy and a pseudoscientist. But then uh, NASA took turn about four years ago and made it official. Gravitational waves actually do exist. They discovered that. And so, what's creating this global warming, the source of this, what is creating the global warming, is actually the gravitational waves of this binary star system that we're living in. Uh, and when these stars become closer together, the waves from the ground dwarf interacting with our sun a ripple effect of energy through our solar system. And that energy uh, goes in and it warms up the cores of the sun and the moon, I'm sorry, the planets and the moons in our solar system, creating warming of those objects and those spatial bodies. So our entire solar system is experiencing global warming at the same exact time because of this binary uh, star system that we have. And that's no evidence that it actually exists. As the energy from the gravitational waves goes into a planet or a moon, it actually creates friction, and friction warms the planet or the moon from the inside out. Scientists now say that NASA, that Saturn's uh, core is actually melting. And if, if we were on Saturn, if that was our planet, we'd already be gone. The ice caps on Mars are melting right now. There's billions of tons of liquid water on Mars. Global warming on Earth is not caused by uh, exhaust fumes and spray can air from spray cans and, and cows passing gas. And that's, I'm sorry, it's just not. Now, do we have an appreciable effect on global warming? Yes, we do. But if you look at the ice core data, the ice core samples, and you can take that back, it's like reading a book. And you can go back every so many thousands of years to see a warming pattern. And actually, we're not even in the warmest warming pattern that we've ever been in. We're not even close to the warmest warming pattern. So there are even cycles of warming. And global warming at its highest level will create an ice age. And uh, we're not there yet. So. If that's, uh, if that's something you've been worrying about, don't worry about it anymore. It's just normal, okay? But it's because it's a result of this binary star system. So my investigation into uh, astronomy and perception led me to a hypothesis that was then 
everybody. some of these and I'm a member of this ancient artifacts uh, preservation society um, in America and they they there's people still finding them today there's still people still finding artifacts in North America and the ones that have been recorded in history over the last 200 250 years have often been found along with the giant skeletons some of them even reported by the smithsonian institution in the annual report in the late 1800s who then denied these skeletons and artifacts ever existed and disappeared the whole lot of them and so but people are still finding them i've seen some myself um you know i put giants on record in a couple of videos i've produced we actually had two amazing examples all these things that have been dug out of mounds where accounts of giant skeletons were said to have been dug up from. One of them was near Cahokia in Illinois, not Cahokia itself, but another mound site near there. Another one was in Ohio, and I think there was another one we saw actually from uh, the Mississippi area as well. So that's North America. Now, there are other artifacts that have been found in Arizona and Utah, giant armor being worn by some of the skeletons found in some caves there. We have, um, it's written, we have a large amount of stories. Um, armor, axes as well, found within the burials. One of these was from Cumbria, a place called St. Bees, where a 13 and a half foot skeleton was found in a field, just when someone was kind of, uh, you know, working with the wheat in their field when they dug down they kept hitting you know bits of rock which are part of this stone lined grave and when they dug it up there was a 13 and a half foot skeleton with giant armor this actually got passed around to all the locals so there might still be pieces of it lying around but we speak to the full account in our book so like again if anyone hears about any giant pieces of armor near st bees and cumbria do get in touch um we have other stories um in different parts of the world <laughs> <laughs> the uh, hen and her chicks just scared the cat away from bull. Um. 
Ancient Guardians of the Sky Part 1. Antiquity and Evolution. Extraterrestrials, Antiquity and Evolution. Right. Thanks for 330k. <laughs> Got some entitled little chickies around Parts of the world, from South Africa, we've, we've got lots of accounts oh, of giant axe heads and spearheads and things oh. like this. But there, there are really quite a lot, you know, and there was, there was one example, I believe, I think, I, I don't know if this is a hoax or not, but down in Ecuador, oh. there was Father Crespi's treasure. And they found, it wasn't, it wasn't really a weapon or such, but it was like a crown, which is like this big, you know, made of this certain type of metal, gold, I believe, with copper, with all these sort of other pieces within it. And this hasn't been explained, but again, that's disappeared as well, like much of the Crespi's treasure has. So, yeah, we've got a lot of accounts. We, we do a whole chapter in our Giants on Record about North America called uh, Curious Artifacts where we go into lots and lots of different things that have been found. I'm not going to list them all now, um, but there are, you know, too many to ignore. And they're not just ceremonial, like some people suggest. There's a lot of suggestions that anything that's giant-sized must be ceremonial. There's even Paleolithic hand axes, which are three times the size as they should be found down in Kent in England. And things like this. And these go back hundreds of thousands of years. So what, what was going on there? Were the giants that long ago? So to answer the question, yes, there are lots and lots of artifacts found all over the world. Unfortunately, many have been lost. Many have been deliberately disappeared. But some are still on display in various places. Andrew Collins. Andrew, you have spent numerous years investigating and researching Gobekli Tepe, an ancient site situated in Turkey. Andrew, in your opinion, who were the founders of Gobekli Tepe, and why did you come to this conclusion? <laughs> awesome yeah, question. that's a good one. Yeah. Okay, uh, Gobekli Tepe, I mean, most of you will probably have heard about it. This is incredible ancient site in southeast Turkey. It's 11,500 years old. Um, it confirms, really, it's almost like the smoking gun of a lost civilization that would have existed... Uh, in part, at least, during the last ice age. And almost certainly, it's the point of founding the cradle of our modern civilization. But from my own point of view, uh, the story really goes back to about 1995. And I was writing a book back then called From the Ashes of Angels. And what this did was to look at all of the myths and legends of these beings, you know, I, I would say human beings, flesh and blood beings that existed in some former age in the, the Near East, everywhere from Anatolia, which is modern day Turkey, to, you know, the other countries in the Near East, Middle East, um, and went under various names. Um, the, the Watchers, the Nephilim, obviously of Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, the Anunnaki of Sumerian Babylonian tradition, and in um, Iranian tradition, they were known as the Immortals. And there was lots of accounts of them. They were said to be an elite. Many are, often they were said to be extremely tall. Um, and it was said that they gave the rudiments of civilization to mortal kind. And that it was from this that civilization arose. And all of these stories seem to be focused around 
you know, a particular area, and I, I began to pinpoint it to southeastern or eastern Anatolia, uh, the area of uh, Shanlurfa today, but also the mountains just to the east. And I, I realised that we were dealing with some kind of uh, elite involving shamanism, and a particular type of shamanism, shamanism involved with uh, birds and particular vultures. I mean, again and again, it talked about these individuals wearing cloaks of feathers. It's even there in the Book of Enoch, which talks all about the watchers and the Nephilim. It talks about these human angels wearing these cloaks of feathers. I mean, the idea that angels had wings is actually quite a, a late development, really. It probably came in no earlier than about the, the 4th or 5th century in the AD. So I was writing about this and yeah, putting this book together, um, working basically in the autumn and winter of 1995. And what I didn't realise is that exactly the same time I was writing this, in southeast Turkey, the first spades were going into the ground at Gebekli Tepe. And this had been rediscovered. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. Come back if you want to hear more. Okay, we're listening to this awesome Gaia show called Extraterrestrials, Antiquity and Evolution. But by a very enlightened um, German archaeologist by the name of Professor Klaus. Hold on, we're going to pull up because this is Gebekli Tepe. Like, who we think the founders were. Oh, shit. It doesn't seem to like it when I rewind. Right. Hmm. I'll just post this real quick. Extraterrestrials, antiquity, and evolution. Come on, man. It's giving me a hard time. saying hey man let me go on really hard on this Gaia antiquity Anunnaki thing maybe maybe people aren't ready for this information man but no we're gonna evolve whether or not y'all want to <laughs> it's, it's already happened Soth Soth has come back Soth is back Soth is back it's hard to say that but the Christ consciousness is yeah. <laughs> it's true, man. It's already here. Can't do nothing about it. It's already fucking done. Done like dinner. You missed it. You snossed it. Awakening presents its ancient <laughs> aliens pal with our guest speakers who will be answering some of our pre-selected to gain the knowledge from beyond the veal. Now, we the heard veal. Beyond the veal. Many stories of these places and, and <laughs> investigating a lot of these locations beyond around the, the world. Veal. You go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard this all before. And you go and you have your experience and you leave. Beyond the veal. 
of the Megalophobia Conference this scared the hell out of me. and the author of over 15 books that challenge the way we think about the past. In 2008, along with the researcher Nigel Skinner-Simpson, he discovered a previously unrecorded cave system beneath the shadow of the Great Pyramid at Giza. It is a story that has brought him acclaim across the world. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Andrew Collins. Our next guest has been described as a female Indiana Jones, and when she's not traveling and conducting research on ancient sites, she has time to author books, conduct tour guides, utilize her amazing abilities as a dowser, and and of course lecture internationally. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Maria Wheatley. Our next guest has traveled the world investigating ancient sites and is a principal researcher for Project Doorway. He has also spent over three decades investigating the supernatural and was a lead investigator for the TV show Ghost Hunters International. He is an executive producer, international lecturer, and author of several books, his latest being co-authored with Brian Allen, entitled The Deceptions of Gods and Men. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Barry Fitzgerald. And our our next guest, the final guest this evening for our ancient alien panel is an American entrepreneur, author, music artist, TV host, producer, actor, and director who specializes in the study of ancient civilizations. He is the founder of Forbidden Knowledge TV and the co-founder of the First Class Space Agency and its subsidiary United Family of Anomaly Hunters. He is also a two-times best-selling author. Ladies and gentlemen, for his first time appearance here in the UK, please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Billy Carson. Esteemed guests will be asked some pre-selected audience questions, starting with Hugh Newman and then moving along. So without further ado, I'll pass you over to our digital MC, Mr. Peter Twist. Hugh Newman. Hugh. There has been much talk recently in regards to giant bones discovered near Stonehenge in the UK. If this is true, and if so, does this mean that there is a possibility that Stonehenge could have been built by giants? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Is that next question now? <laughs> yeah, I, I live in the Stonehenge landscape and I haven't found anything, bones or giants myself just yet. 
but who knows what's under my house. It is quite haunted, so you know, you never know. But I've been researching with Jim Vieira for a good few years on our new book, The Giant Stonehenge in Ancient Britain. And we were always intrigued by, um, you know, the fact that many of these megalithic sites, Stonehenge included, have these giant legends, these myths at their core. Even the earliest names And he witnessed a 14-foot, 10-inch skeleton found in the general area, just, just south of Salisbury, again, within the Stonehenge landscape. A 14-foot, 10 is really tall. I mean, if you meet someone who's 7-foot, it's pretty impressive. So when you meet someone who's 14-foot, 10, or at least find their skeleton. And he was buried in this huge oak log coffin. It had a book with these strange inscriptions on it that could never be deciphered. And they found this quite large metal disc made of tin and lead that again had the same kind of obscure inscriptions on it, but no one could decode it. All of these have now disappeared. But before they did disappear, they were witnessed not only by Thomas Elliot and his, his well-known father, but also by John Leland um, and various other well-known scholars, okay. almost like celebrities and academics at the time. So they, they wouldn't really make this up. One of the weird things as well, even in um, 
Bush Barrow, where the famous lozenge was found, which is just, just next to Stonehenge. The description of the burial there was a very robust, very tall individual. We have similar accounts from other mounds in the area. But also we have this tradition going back to the 1400s of a secret society, the Guild of Tailors in Salisbury, parading a 24-foot giant around town every summer solstice, just after the summer solstice, St. John the Baptist Day, every year since the mid-1400s. This is before the skeletons were even found. So there's this, why were they parading this giant around? What, what was this pageant all about? And then we realized they eventually named him St. Christopher. And we, me and Jim, when we were researching a bit, wondered why would they name a giant St. Christopher? And St. Christopher, if you look, he was a giant Canaanite warrior from the Bible lands. And he was said to have carried Jesus on his shoulder when he came over, and this is what he became famous for. And he decided to, you know, you know, kind of worship Jesus and God and all this kind of stuff. But so you've got these all these giant connections, even with the Bible lands in this particular area. But I must admit, this is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the giant discoveries made, especially in relation to megalithic sites in ancient Britain and Ireland and Scotland and Wales everywhere. We have over 250 accounts with legends that match the discoveries being made in the ground. And so there's a real story here, and I hope this has given you a quick introduction, and hopefully this answered the question. Andrew Collins. Andrew, do the lost underworld of catacombs beneath the Egyptian pyramids show any evidence that the Egyptians built them, and if so, why were they left unexplored for around 200 years? <laughs> well, that's a big one. Um, who's heard of the Hall of Records? Okay. Um, the idea that somewhere beneath the plateau at Giza, beneath the Great Pyramid, beneath the Great Sphinx, is some kind of secret chamber with the, 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 quite literally the secrets of the universe contained within it. Well, this is something which is actually being written about for the last 2,000 years. I mean, there's Roman accounts of it, there's various Arab accounts, um, there are various people in the 19th century that wrote about it. The, the great psychic Edgar Casey wrote about the idea of the, the Hall of Records. And back in the, the 80s, I first got to hear about this, and I thought, I want to try and find it. I mean, I want to go out there and actually try and find it. And I didn't really get the opportunity um, until the 2000s. And by that time, um, I was in quite an influential position as far as, as my relationship with people, you know, on the plateau, Egyptologists or whatever. Um, and I started working with a, uh, an Egyptological researcher by the name of Nigel Skinner-Simpson. And the idea was to try and find if there was any possible entrance into a cave underworld at Giza that would eventually lead to the Hall of Records, which I, I firmly believe was there. Um, and it took us five years, I mean, you know, of absolute research, you know, throughout the 2000s. And then in 2008, we started, we, we, we uncovered this 200-year-old diary account that talked about a... Um, Uh, uh, and this is, you know, I mean, in this 
I went in to be down for about five days or whatever. And Norris said, look, you know, I, I've read virtually everything that's ever been written about the Big Bang franchise in the articles, papers, and whatever they were in the news which is about 1890, it, it's just not recorded. So we've been carefully trying to dissect exactly whereabouts this entrance into this cave underworld was. And we've been there to the northwest corner of the black side.
Well, that's without even talking about what happened in Turkey, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, um, so, but my good friend Rod, uh, um, Robert Bouvau, yeah, the, the author of the Orion Mystery, knew all the right people and sorted it all out. So, I can, find, I can finally go back to Egypt with, you know, with my head held high. So, that was it. But those, those caves, you can see them on radar images and they go underneath the second pyramid, not the Sphinx, not the Great Pyramid, the second pyramid. And it's said that underneath the second pyramid is the tomb of Hermes, and that within his hands he holds something called the Emerald Tablets, and that they themselves are supposedly symbolic of these great secrets that are to be found within the Hall of Records when finally you get to that. But I'd like to think that we've come closest to actually entering inside those Hall of Records. So basically, that's my story of, uh, of Egypt, but um, just one of the many adventures I've been on. So thank you. Maria Wheatley. Maria, it has been written that decades ago, a most unusual skeleton was excavated close to Stonehenge. Its description was said to be very similar to Lloyd Pye's famous star child. How true is this, and why was it described as unusual? Well, there's many different types of beings or civilizations associated with Stonehenge. There are giants like Hugh describes, but there are also other types of civilizations that were much smaller and very elfin-like. And I'll be describing that in my talk. My research, I really like the Neolithic era, and that's the ancient time of Stonehenge. That's going back to around 3,800 BC and beyond that. And they built and constructed long barrows, causewayed enclosures, and curses monuments. They were an incredible type of people because I, I discovered that they had long skulls, elongated skulls, and the femur bones of these people were only up to 16 inches, which makes them really small, the opposite of the giants. So they were really about sort of four feet eight for the women and five feet, five feet four for the males of the Neolithic period. Now, in that research, I noticed that there's a long barrow. It's not on the map. It's on a very ancient map that is in view of Stonehenge. And in that barrow was described the most unusual Jesus burial Christ. ever. It's unprecedented. Oh and it hasn't anything like it in the British Isles. So if you imagine that in the Neolithic, they would take a whole body and put it in what's called the flexed position, that's in like the fetal position, and tie it up. Or they would deflesh the person and take the skull and the long bones, and sometimes a whole person as well, and place those into megalithic chambers. That's a Neolithic burial. Very common. Uh, but near Stonehenge, things get weird. <laughs> and they really do. It's an energetic landscape. It's got ley lines flowing through it. It's got aquifers beneath it. It's a high-res place. And that's why English heritage don't want you to touch the stones. Because you will get a download, as I have and many other people before. In fact, in my presentation, I'm going to tell you lie after lie after lie that the Ministry of works has done to Stonehenge, they've hidden stones, they've defaced them, which is a crime. 
and one stone was stolen by the royal family. But back to the Neolithic era, for example, in this unusual mount, there were people with long skulls, the short people with the long skulls, in a circle, tied together, and in the center of that circle of beings was this very unusual skull that was described. It stopped the excavators in their tracks, and they literally looked at it and said, what is this? And so they wrote a report, and that report was re-evaluated in the 1930s. And it said that there was a skull, and it had um, eyes on top of its head, very similar, like it was said, to Lloyd Pye's uh, skull. But more than that, it was the whole skeleton that they were describing. And they were saying the rib cages were, they were very strange, very close together, and it had a tail. And it must have been revered because everybody else was holding it around. I gave that report to Ted, Dr. Ted Robinson, who worked with Lloyd Pye on The Star Child. And I said, you tell me what's going on. You worked with Lloyd Pye. He said it's an identical type of uh, being. So I think there's a lot more going on in this
So for me, it was a totally different experience of the landscape and of, you know, the monument. If you imagine that in the Neolithic, some amazing monuments were built by these people, and maybe under the direction of the Spartans, maybe under the direction of a ruling elite that I will show you in my presentation uh, tomorrow. There's so much wrapped up uh, into, into the land. And one of those elements stood in front of Stonehenge, and it was called the Cursus Monument, recorded by William Stephen, and who was an antiquarian of the 18th century. And he described it as being a huge, maybe six to ten feet tall building. Imagine that chalk block, like almost like kind of blocks of chalk that was smoothed off. And it went on for nearly two miles in front of Stonehenge in a rectangular shape. Sadly, that got pulled out. And that would have had very acoustic sounds, some people would uh, speculate on. And even the chambers that these Neolithic people went into, it's been reported that they do have acoustic properties. So for me, the adventures haven't ended with my discoveries at Stonehenge. They've only just begun. Barry Fitzgerald. Barry, do you think the mythology from our ancient past still presents itself in current times? Yes, um, I do. And, and I think there is a lot to learn from our ancient mythology and folklore. Um, briefly, I was speaking to some of our panel members um, today in, in regard to this. There is, a, there is a, a real value in a lot of the message, the messages and stories that they left behind. Um, and how that brings us forward into how we examine things today. And as I said, there's a great value, but outside of that, we also need to look at the truth. What truth should we leave behind? We need something more substantial. It's not so much, I think, um, um, I, I think.
And so I personally believe that in ancient times, these uh, advanced beings, they call them the Naturu in ancient Egypt. The Naturu in Mesopotamia, they call them the Anunnaki, the Sumerians did. Uh, they're, they're named in the Enuma Elish and the Seven Tablets of Creation. Uh, and all around the world, you find these cultures have these different names for these beings. But in my opinion, some beings came here, some advanced beings. I don't think that they were gods as in the creator of universes, I do believe that people deified them because they were mystified by their capabilities. They became cargo cults worldwide around, centered around these advanced beings, but they had advanced tools and technology. 
when I went to uh, Cambodia, and I think it was 2018, uh, one of the locals that had been there for generations, the family had been there for generations, told me that the, camp, the annual watch was poured into place. They poured it into place. And when you look at some of the stone there around that structure, it does look like liquefied concrete. Pretty interesting. And so there obviously was a very, very advanced culture, in my opinion, in the ancient past, not taking anything away from our ancient ancestors because they themselves <laughs> had been taught and developed uh, different levels of advanced technology. But just my personal experience and from dealing like, especially with the ancient Egyptian text and the language of light uh, and learning from that culture directly, dealing and talking with local guides, homegrown guides, generations of pyramid families, you know, it looks to me as if uh, these Nituru who came down at the time of Zeptepi they were claimed to have turned mud into a kingdom. These are sky gods that came to Earth. Now, sometimes people scoff and say, well, you know, why couldn't human beings just do all this stuff? I'm not saying that human beings didn't do all this stuff. I'm saying some type of a person or hominid, because I don't really think that a lot of these uh, advanced beings look like little big men with antenna. I think we look a lot like them, and they look a lot like us. Potentially, probably even our cousins. Because I kind of believe now after visiting Australia and talking to the Aboriginal elders, that Earth is most likely some kind of a mentally And wherever you look around the world, we see the same exact story of this, these advanced beings showing up after a catastrophe and helping re-kickstart civilization. Now, where, where have the tools gone? Where have this, this technology gone? If you look at uh, the way that the, the stones were, were put together and the types of materials in the stones, the types of stones that were put up to create these megalithic structures, you find that they were created the same time. Now, if you take a piece of human or man-made technology and put it next to a pyramid and then go away and come back 10,000 years later, that, that, that technology that you put down next to the pyramid is going to be dust. Right, so we know that for a fact because we experience rust and everything here just in a few years. If you have a car near the ocean, uh, or you have a car that drives in a lot of uh, salt when it's in the winter months, like in New York City or whatever, the salt eats away and rusts out your vehicle. So we know that uh, technology disintegrates over time. And so I think some of it has disintegrated over time, as well as the fact that I believe after the last pyramid war, uh, that a lot of the technology was stripped out of a lot of the pyramids and temples and taken away. A lot of the capstones of, a, of the majority of the pyramids, I believe that they were taking off and removed purposefully to prevent people from accessing the energy source or the power source or the technology. Whatever that finishing piece of the structure accomplished, I believe that that was taken away as well by these people. Uh, and if the purpose of that was to prevent us from being able to uh, expedite our progress with technological advancement. Uh, and so I believe that a lot of it was taken away, and some of it, to be honest, it just disintegrated over time, a massive amount of time. And that's my personal experience and personal understanding of it. Hugh Newman. Hugh. It has been written that some giant skeletons had extra digits and even two rows of teeth. Do you believe these to be real? And if so, do you think these variations in such skeletons are a normal process of evolution. Ooh, okay. So 
Oh, this is this is a weird one. This is something we've come across, especially really mainly in North America, as you can see up here. We've, we've got all these accounts. We've got an entire chapter devoted to this in our book, Giants on Record, where there are reports of, of what are called double rows of teeth. Now, sometimes triple rows of teeth in some of the jaws, as we found in Amelia Island in Florida, reported in the mid-1800s. But we have about 30, maybe possibly 50 accounts, as some of them are quite unusual descriptions of this phenomena in giant skeletons dug up from the mounds and from the deserts and even from megalithic sites in North America. Now, sometimes you just have a few extra teeth, like supernumerary teeth, or it could be fully fledged hyperdontia, which is like extra teeth, abnormal growth in the mouth. But these, some of these accounts are very strange because they have clear two rows of teeth in each jaw. Now, this is something that has been noted is you do get genetic throwbacks in modern times, but usually these appear in very, very tall people. And I've had, since the book came out, since we did our TV show about this, that lots of people contacted us. One of the things we did in the TV show was um, interview Dr. Shara Bailey of um, a New York University, who's a dental anthropologist, and we showed her all these accounts, any photos we had, and she was absolutely stunned. And what she realized, and the only real explanation how this could keep happening, is there's some genetic line which could be connected with a very early ancestor of humans, perhaps the Denisovans, we don't know yet, and these are genetic throwbacks occurring, and they are kind of bred, especially in North America, between elite groups to maintain these giant genes. And it got to a point where extra rows of teeth would be created, almost like just to fill up the gap in the giant jaws that are occurring in North America. But we have other accounts. We have, we have stories from um, Ireland. Uh, we have like the mythological stories of some of the giant kings had double rows of teeth. They take some digits on each hand. Um, we have stories of, we actually have accounts, one from Dorset, where the, and one from uh, the Outer Hebrides, where they've, in Britain, where they've actually found extra teeth in the jaws of certain individuals, and we feature that in our latest book. But we also have the digits, the extra fingers and toes. Now, this is an anomaly my, my co-author and good friend Jim Vieira is the real expert on, and there's a, he's done a whole lecture about this. And he's found this in more giant accounts than normal-sized human accounts. So again, we seem to be finding this kind of genetic throwback to very, very early ancient times. And again, we have mythological figures from the Bible, like I think it's the fourth descendant of Goliath, was said to have had six fingers and six toes. Some accounts from the Bible have extra rows of teeth in the mouth of the giant of Gath. And there's other stories from all over the world where we find this anomaly. You also find petroglyphs with like six fingers carved or painted at certain places, like in North America and other areas. And so the explanation is quite a hard one to decipher, but it appears, as I said, like there's kind of genetic throwbacks linked with these giant genes. And one of these giant genes that we looked into was something called the AIP gene, which is from the Ulster region of the northern part of Ireland. Now, this is a gene that's at least been recorded and traced back at least 2,500 years. And this is the area where Charles Byrne, the Irish giant, and many other kind of relatively modern giants over the last few hundred years 
have come from, and it still happens today, that people are being born with this AIP gene in them. Now, this isn't this quite the same as acromegaly or gigantism, and you do, you're quite well proportioned with this AIP gene, unlike with these other uh, pituitary conditions. And some people have even suggested this gene may have originated from North America, where we find the giants. Originally, I think like, America is actually the giant kind of capital of the planet. And so the fact you've got this occurring in uh, this part of Ireland, and you have all these legends of these giant races, uh, the Tua de Danan, the Fomorians, and others, who again, some of them were said to have extra fingers and extra teeth. I think there's a connection there, and I think the myths do record elements of what was actually going on in prehistoric times. So there's more research really needs to be done about this double rows of teeth kind of phenomena because we've presented this, we've shown it to academics, and as usual, when you're looking at unusual things like this, there's very little interest from that side of the kind of um, area of research. So hopefully more will come out on that. But for now, if you know anyone with double rows of teeth or extra fingers, please get in touch. <laughs> Andrew Collins. Andrew, over the last 10 years, there have been numerous theories about the function of the Great Pyramid in Egypt. What do you believe its function was? Okay, another good question. Um, well, I, I, I'm a conventionalist, to be honest. Um, and for me, the Great Pyramid probably was constructed around 2600 BC. I know there's lots of theories suggesting that, it, that it's much older. Um, and I also believe that it probably is a form of tomb. But I think the word tomb really underplays what we're dealing with here. Because if you think of a tomb, you think of going into a churchyard and seeing a tomb or outside, you know, maybe a box or a grave or going inside a, a church and seeing, you know, some kind of monument or whatever. Well, we're not dealing about that type of tomb. We're not dealing with that sort of tomb. We're talking about what might be described as an ascension machine. I think that is a much better way of looking at the Great Pyramid. And who would it have been an ascension machine for? Well, the builder, the traditional builder of the Great Pyramid was Khufu. And he was one of the kings of the fourth dynasty. Uh, and of course, um, you know, his uh, immediate descendants were responsible for the construction of the other two main perfect pyramids, as they're called, on the Giza Plateau, uh, which is the second pyramid, you know, the, the, the pyramid of Capri, uh, and of course the third pyramid, the pyramid of Menkara. Well, you know, you've got these three incredible monuments, and I think that the King's Chamber, in particular, obviously was meant to be the, the, the heart of this, this ascension machine. And I think that there is a, a very strong possibility that the idea was to almost project the soul of the pharaoh into some kind of sky world. Um, so virtually through the actual apex of the actual um, pyramid itself towards some kind of celestial or cosmic destination. Now, obviously, you'll be aware of uh, my good friend uh, Robert Bouvel's ideas to do with um, Orion, um, but there are other alternatives as well relating to 
the alignments of the three great pyramids at Giza and those that have read my books like the Cygnus Key and the Cygnus Mystery will know that Cygnus is also a very, very important constellation associated with ancient Egypt. And what, it, and what Cygnus represented, well, I mean, Cygnus in Europe, Euro and Eurasian tradition is essentially a fixer focus, uh, usually a strong looking at the Avanska, uh, and it's, you know, striking, it's up there in the sky, and it's identified with all the cultures. But in ancient Egypt, as the body of a goddess known as Nuit. You often see this picture of this naked lady arched over the earth, and that's Nuit. And she was personified in the night sky as the Milky Way. Well, if you see that impression of this goddess, the position where um, the Milky Way splits in two, where the Cygnus stars are located, was her womb. And obviously beneath that, obviously her legs were where the Milky Way splits in two. And this area of the sky, this womb, if you like, of the goddess, was seen as an entry and exit to the sky world in amongst many different ancient cultures around the world. I mean, for instance, in Native American tradition, you have what's known as the path of souls death journey. Uh, and this was a journey that was adopted by at least 30 to 40 different tribes, all with variations of exactly the same journey into the afterlife. And essentially what would happen is that at death, either the deceased or the shaman going into an altered state would make a leap of faith towards the horizon at a particular time where they would enter the Milky Way via one of the key stars in the constellation of Orion. That's why Orion is so important in ancient Egypt, because it was like the first bridge, the first doorway into the next world. And the soul would then travel along the Milky Way until it reached the Cygnus constellation. And then it would be either judged um, to be righteous and it would go into the afterlife, or if not, it would be reincarnated or the soul would actually be sent into oblivion. And this was what's known as the path of souls journey. And the actual Milky Way was that path of souls. It was a road or river into the afterlife. Exactly the same thing was going on in ancient Egypt. I mean, Graham Hancock talks all about this in his last book, America, before. But it's something that, you know, those that have read my books like Cygnus Mystery, Cygnus Key, will be very, very much familiar with that. And the pyramids, the three pyramids at Giza, are perfectly aligned uh, to the three main stars of Cygnus, the so-called winged stars of Cygnus, the bird, and its form as, um, well, in, in Egypt, it's probably uh, something like a hawk or a falcon, basically. And so those pyramids were, were specifically placed, specifically aligned, so that the soul could travel first to Orion and then journey on into the afterlife via the womb of the goddess Nuit. And it is from within this that 
the soul was reborn into the afterlife, into the second life. Um, you know, the, the, the field of reeds beyond the physical world. So that's it, really. So in, in, in summary, the Great Pyramid and its neighbours, of course, was the end product of a lot of uh, evolution that had gone on in Egypt for many thousands of years. But ultimately, it's an ascension machine to project that soul into the afterlife. Maria Wheatley. Maria, locations of Salisbury Plain in the UK are utilised by the British military forces and are considered off-limits to the general public. Maria, do you think that there is a reason for such military bases in specific locations near to Stonehenge? Of course. Stonehenge is a power centre, the biggest power centre in the British Isles. And close to it, if you imagine, Stonehenge is right on the periphery of the Salisbury Plain. The Salisbury Plain itself, and it is a military establishment, is 25 miles roughly by 25 miles. You can't go on to some parts of the Salisbury Plain, you denied access. So it's likened to Area 51. But more than that, the Salisbury Plain is an area that has up to 2,500 prehistoric monuments therein. That's a lot of monuments. And some of the most interesting, intriguing and fascinating burials are in that zone. So it is very difficult. You have to navigate the plane. You have to work out if there's a red flag flying, and if it is, you can't enter it. They use live ammunition, and it goes right over the heads, uh, over some of the roads, as it were, as you're, you're travelling along it. But as well, Stonehenge is often associated with time distortions. <laughs> I do past life regression, and I had some very interesting cases come my way from the military who said that they parked up their car along a trackway very close to Stonehenge. And they'd had uh, a ciggy, a couple of cigarettes, and a couple of tins of beer, and, you know, they're having a good time. And then... What they saw was these lights come out of what they thought was the ground near some barrows. And these lights came towards the car and almost danced around it quite hypnotically. But they're from the military. And they realized they could triangulate and, and do this. <laughs> and so they thought, oh, it was, you know, just one of those things. And they'd heard of things like earth lights, bowls, and that could have answered what had occurred with these lights. So they go back to Lark Hill, and I know there's a chap here today from, uh, from Lark Hill that I've spoken to. So they go back, and then they are under military arrest because they've been absent without leave for a few days. So, and that was uh, in Got Out for Past Life. Uh, regression, but they felt that it had happened anyway. So I think Stonehenge can distort time. And I think that's what the military is interested in as well. And again, if we look beyond the lay, if we look beyond Earth currents for one moment, and what is beneath Stonehenge that would interest people like the military? What's beneath Stonehenge are two massive aquifers. One is an aquifer of groundwater that you get at places like the Giza Pyramid, for example. So you've got a large body of water. But as an esoteric water designer, 
I know that there's another type of water that I've often spoke about in lectures, and that's the water born within Gaia. And it's independent of rainfall, and it produces a spiral pattern. Now, water has memory, okay? So I think oh, how some people can work with that is it is the Akashic record of place. It has information stored in it. And also, a little-known fact about Stonehenge is the first stone to be raised wasn't. It was buried. So the first stone went down into the ground, and then a stone was placed upon it. And so I think the military are interested in Stonehenge because it has a lot of different types of energy. It's also an Akashic record. And the energies, when you start to look at how they flow into and out of a monument, is very interesting. Because at, Stone, at Stonehenge, they emerge. Now, when you have Earth energies emerging uh, around by the altar stone, incidentally, you have a lot of power. And it also is associated with vortex energy. And the military, you only have to look to, you know, uh, country after country after country, and there's always a little formula, vortex, ancient sites, military. So it's not just Stonehenge, it's all over the world. Then, when you start to look at how the military bases surround Stonehenge, is very interesting as well, because you have, it must be about sort of seven miles away, you have our nuclear biological testing center, Porton Down. Now that's right on a straight lane going out from the, the, uh, the Stonehenge environs. So it seems that all of their military establishments are linked in with lay energy as well, that I believe that they are utilizing in, in ways that you know, they, they do try to keep quiet about it. And I think they just, like I said earlier, they distort time as well. As many of people on this panel know, and I've been to Stonehenge year after year, and I've been to Stonehenge decade after decade, and in 2010, I was really excited because I actually was with Hugh uh, in 2010 at, at Stonehenge uh, with Michael Tellinger, and I remember I was, I was bigging it up, as, as we do, and uh, I was saying to the, the people that were the participants, it's coming into its power. And a decade and a decade before, it like ripples through time and it can get high res and it was coming into its moment of power. And that means if you go by the greater trilophon, for example, you feel its energy field as you're approaching that stone. And that can change your consciousness, your spirituality, even, I believe, your, your past, past karma. So it's coming into its power. And I thought, wow. What a day this is going to be. And so we got, if you remember, Hugh, we were told to sort of line up like school children and told you can't touch the stones. And from that moment forth, when Stonehenge could have been a place, what, when you go to these ancient sites, it's the place that can change you. Now imagine Avery Henge, the world's largest stone circle, can have up to 2,000 people comfortably therein. And you all got the same intent, the same spirituality. You're on the power lines and it can bang, switch people on like that. 2,000 people at any one time. And that's what I think these ancient sites were being used in a good way 
of increasing people's spirituality. And I think the military kind of dampens that down. Uh, yeah, greatly for sure. So. <laughs> and as well, with vortex energy patterns, each type of earth energy releases a pattern. It's like a signature in a way, and we can decode those signatures. And so if you go to uh, other ancient sites, they will have particular signatures. Stonehenge is like a chapter. And like I said, it has energies emerging, like the cobra coming up out of the land. They're alpha lines. And it has uh, earth currents that terminate their omega lines. And so it has everything. And if we learn to work with these different energies in different ways, we can co-create on an alpha. We can release on an omega type of energy. So I think, you know, in its most positive guys. Stonehenge was the teacher of the people. Stonehenge was the wisdom keeper of the past. And that's what the military know. And that's why they have up to 16 military sites surrounding Stonehenge. I hope that answers the question. Barry Fitzgerald. Barry, on occasion, do you think folklore and mythology can help bridge the gap between our ancestors? That is, until science catches up. Yes, I, I do think it's, it's useful. And like the, the last question that came through, I do think that there is some um, direction that we can gain from that. Um, but there's also, there are also um, places that we have to physically endure. I find from from that originate within the mythology and the folklore, and like many on the panel who have gone to these locations, there there is great learning to be delivered by doing so, and there have been some locations that have scared the absolute bejesus out of me um, when it, when it comes to it. And one of those locations was back in my own home island. Unfortunately, many have been lost, many have been deliberately disappeared, but some are still on display in various places. Andrew Collins. Andrew, you have spent numerous years investigating and researching Gobekli Tepe, an ancient site situated in Turkey. Andrew, in your opinion, who were the founders of Gobekli Tepe, and why did you come to this conclusion? Yeah, that's a good one. Okay, uh, Gobekli Tepe, I mean, most of you will probably have heard about it. This is incredible ancient site in huh? East Turkey, 11,500 years old. Um, it What's confirms, that? really, it's almost like the smoking gun of a lost civilization that would have existed, okay? uh, in part at least, during the last ice age. And almost certainly, it's the point of kind of the cradle of our modern right. civilization. But from my own point of view, uh, the story really goes back to about 1995, and I was writing a book back then called From the Ashes of Angels. And what this did was to look at all of the myths and legends of these beings, you know, I, I would say human beings, flesh and blood beings, that existed in some former age in the, the Near East, everywhere from Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey, to you know, the other countries in the Near East, Middle East, um, and went under various names. Um, the, the Watchers, the Nephilim, obviously of Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, the Anunnaki of Sumerian Babylonian tradition, 
and in um, Iranian tradition, they were known as the immortals. And there was lots of accounts of them. They were said to be an elite. Many are, often they were said to be extremely tall. Um, and it was said that they gave the rudiments of civilization to mortal kind, and uh, it was from this that civilization arose. And all of these stories seem to be focused around you know, a particular area, and I, I began to pinpoint it to southeastern or eastern Anatolia, uh, the area of Shanlurfa uh, today, but also the mountains just to the east. And I, I realized that we were dealing with some kind of uh, elite involving shamanism, a particular type of shamanism, shamanism involved with uh, birds in particular vultures. I mean, again and again, it talks about these individuals wearing cloaks of feathers. Turkey vultures around here. In the Book of Enoch, which talks all about the watchers and the Nephilim. It talks about these human angels wearing these cloaks of feathers. I mean, the angels had wings. It's actually quite a, a late development, really. It probably came in no earlier than about the, the 4th or 5th century in the AD. So I was writing about this and yeah, putting this book together, um, working basically in the autumn and winter of 1995. And what I didn't realise is that exactly the same time I was writing this, in southeast Turkey, the first okay. spades were going into the ground at Gebekli Tepe. And this had been rediscovered by a very enlightened uh, German archaeologist by the name of Professor Klaus Schmidt, who sadly is no longer with us, and he realised, he went up to this, the top of this mountaintop, and there's this huge occupational mound, or tepe, as they call it, and he saw all of these pieces of carved stone. Now, earlier, people had seen these carved stone, but they, but they were so advanced that they assumed that they belonged to a, a culture that only existed probably about a thousand years ago, you know, equivalent to the same time as the Gothic cathedrals in Europe. And yet, no, all of these carvings were at least 11,000 years old. And Professor Klaus Schmidt realized that, started the excavations at Gebekli Tepe and uncovered these incredible stone enclosures. You can see, you know, some of them on the, the screen at the moment. And they are massive T-shaped pillars with carvings of animals and other creatures of the natural world. Many of them have well, anthropomorphic features. In other words, they're, they're human-like with hands reaching round the, the front narrow edges of the stones. The actual T-shaped tops of them are the abstract heads of these human individuals. Now, whether they were the first gods, whether they were celestial beings or great ancestors is still a, a matter of, of debate. And very gradually, from 1995 through to you know, the, the current decade, they've been uncovering all of these different enclosures. And obviously, I wrote a book called Gebekli Tepe, Genesis of the Gods, which came out in 2014, which was uh, a, a, a massive bestseller, not only you know, uh, around the world, but in, in, in Turkey itself. You know, the people in Turkey, you know, love this and it's very important to yeah. them. But on top of this is that recently the sister site of Gebekli Tepe has been discovered about 60 miles to the east at a place called Karahan Tepe. And this is even more 
sophisticated than Gobekli Tepe. And it's a site that I've been to uh, on my own and with, with Hugh here uh, and JJ, uh, Hugh's partner, on a number of occasions. But that was before these incredible excavations that have taken place over the last couple of years. And this shows that at the end of the last ice age, that this civilization, which I call the civilization of the ancients, is even more sophisticated. And this knowledge must have been carried over from, well, as I say, before the last ice age, certainly during the last ice age. And that these were incredibly advanced peoples. So that everything that I wrote about in From the Ashes of Angels, to do with the Watchers, the Nephilim, the Anunnaki, you know, these are the names of these founders of civilization, and that these stories were passed on from generation to generation until they were eventually written down, whether it be in Samaria, you know, Babylon, whether it be within you know, the, the, the Jewish Hebrew tradition, in things like the Book of Enoch, the Book of Giants, and of course, in the Hebrew Bible itself. So they preserved the memory of these founders of civilization. And that's what Gebekli Tepe is. It is the point of foundation of our own civilization with massive implications for everything that came after, including Egyptian civilization and the construction of the Great Pyramids. And there's a book over there that, called The Cygnus Key that I wrote, which has most of all of what I've just said in. So check that out if you can. Cheers. Maria Wheatley. Maria. Tishhead Barrow on Salisbury Plain, UK, is a location that has captured your interest. What is it that makes this particular barrow different than others, and what have been discovered there? Yes, well, I spoke earlier that there's different types of long barrows that were Neolithic, and going back sort of like five and a half thousand years, uh, if, if you will, and... Some of us here probably have been into inside of a megalithic long barrow like Wayland Smithy in Oxfordshire or West Kennet Long Barrow close to Avebury. And on the Salisbury Plain that I was talking about earlier, there wasn't really megalithic chambers. They made them surrounded by wood. And so they built a really long mound and imagine it's all kind of panelled around the outside. Well, I got interested in Tillshead Long Barrow, or it's called Old Ditch Barrow, uh, because I decided to use Dowson in a different way. Because most people use information Dowson to ask a question and they get an answer, which is great. But I thought, because I come from like more of a Druid Wiccan background, what if I asked the land itself what do you want me to find and what would happen? So I decided to put a big map up uh, in, my, in my living room and I started divining the uh, ancient uh, environs of Stonehenge. And it's literally a method that is so, so easy to do. You go along one side of the map and the other and you get a big X. X marks the spot, <laughs> literally. And, uh, and it kept going back to Tillshead Long Barrow. And at this time, the elongated scars hadn't been uh, discovered as such. And so I decided on a cold February morning that something was calling to me across time. And so I got out and it, it was literally a freezing cold day. And then, uh, that was about five years ago in 2015, you could go onto this magnificent mound and it has a spirit of place. 
And that spirit of place kind of touches your soul in some way. And it really does. And so I led on the mound and then I just thought I've got to find out who you are. Uh, and who the, the what sort of people went into this uh, long mound because it was the biggest in northwest Europe. No other mound is that big. And I thought, bingo, I've hit hundreds and hundreds of people that were buried there in the ancient past because long barrows were communal barrows where you could get up to 30, sometimes 100 people went into particular uh, barrows. But it turned out that it wasn't, it contained just one person. And that person was a woman. It was the elongated skull that I said I went to Cambridge with. But this is what's happened since then. I went back there in the time when we should have gone out. And I decided to go there because again, I have these like, it's like a calling across time. And this time the calling came in a dream and this elongated skulled woman came to me and she said, find my child. And as a mother, that touched my heart. So I decided to go back to, to this massive barrow. Honestly, it snakes across the Salisbury Plain. And what the military had done, because people that had read my book and listened to, you know, Gaia TV interviews and things like that, their beauty touched the landscape because they were making little clouties, ribbons, tying them on the tree and saying prayers to this Neolithic woman that was very short. She was four foot eight, quite like Queen Nefertiti. And she, her skull was very, very extended because I've discovered two races of elongated skulled people. I call one the hyper-elongated and the other the lesser elongated. So people were coming here, paying homage, remembering the spirituality of the Salisbury Plain, and for one moment in time forgetting that it was Area 51, if you could have the right to go on. So this is what the military did in their response. They started to put no entry signs up across her barracks. And it was crazy, really, because the fence is only four foot. So I just hop over the fence. I mean, that was a bit ridiculous. So we've got to put a fence up. Come on. Put a fence up, man. <laughs> and uh, then uh, what they did, and I went back and I thought, well, that's a joke, you know. And then I went back there two months later, yeah, to see again what was going on. Because you get this calling across time. You, you know what I mean, the sensitive people here. And you can't not listen to it. And this time, what the military did, they'd covered it in wire mesh. So it was like a Faraday cage wow. placed over this barrow. And so I tried to tug and tug at it wow. like, you, like you do, but it was really nailed in. So uh, I was with, with a friend and I said, let's get some wire clippers and start clipping some off. Because imagine that a long barrow, and this one's huge, it, it, like I said, it's the biggest in Northwest Europe. Sometimes when an energy current flows along the axis line of it, some earth currents are deemed special, recognized by our ancient ancestors because they pulse out energy in seven 
eights or nines. And we can, you know, literally rebalance our chakra systems upon these. Glastonbury Abbey has an access line like that. And some of the other long barrows in the area, especially Wayland's Smithy. So I was trying to hack away at these, um, you know, making the holes so the energy could symbolically come back again. And then, unbeknownst to me, you know, there was a warden there. So this time, you know, they're really saying, could you get off the mound, get off the mound uh, and go down. So I had to get off the mound and literally uh, go down. But this is the thing. If they think that we're going to be empowered with love, beauty, harmony and balance, bang, they try to stop it. And that's where people like you and I can come in. We can free up these monuments and just say no. And we can free up these places and say, yes, we can go there to feel the energies, to be with the spirit of the place and to be with the ancestors old. Barry Fitzgerald. Barry. Throughout our history, there are details that suggest that we are encountering today, on a supernatural level, the same as what our ancestors encountered. Barry, do you also see these connections? Uh, yes, we, we do. Um, and uh, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, more ancient stories which are available online um, um, through our, uh, the Irish government, um, we can see this correlation, and especially if we consider within ufology, for instance, the idea of a cylinder, um, which we would identify in the modern sense. Um, we have accounts written in, in our older texts that speak of people being on, on lake shores watching this, and they label it the ghost train. They see this carriage coming across the sky and lowering itself into water, um, and this huge amount of heat that's presented by this this particular um, ghost carriage um, raises up uh, steam into the air, and then it raises and then dips into an ancient passage chamber, um, and is gone, is never seen again. Now, they also describe the windows along the side. Now, that today is clearly identifiable within ufology as being a cylinder. So we do see these connections, and, and the stories are, are tenfold. We, we, we have, Ireland is, is one of those countries around the world that has taken that heritage and put it online, scanned the details and put it online for everyone to look at from a global perspective. Um, this, it's not, the secrets are not being held, they're being given. Um, and it's up to us then that we can go online um, and, and look at those and, and, and grab those connections for ourselves. So there's nothing being hidden away from our perspective. Um, but yes, we do see this, this correlation between what our ancestors were dealing with before and what they're dealing with now. And that, that goes as well, and um, that neatly slips into the, this avenue, the strange avenue of animal mutilation. We also see this within our ancient past and, and migrates itself right through today. The problem is that what we're trying to identify with continually changed its mask over the period of time, and sometimes several times in a generation. Um, so for us, it was about stepping behind that particular veil to see, well, what actually is this? And a lot of the indicators now are suggesting that we're looking at the same source. And, and you know, there is, there is a lot to be seen within those particular files, but I'll, I'll end there because I could really go on and on and on. Billy Carson. Billy, 
Over the last five years, there has been information come forward from scientists stating that a genetically coded number was created within the human genome, this being the number 37. Do you believe this could be evidence of tampering or intelligent design by extraterrestrials? Uh, yeah, so there's been a lot of evidence coming forward and really it started beyond five years ago. Uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton talked about epigenetics over 20 years ago, and uh, he was also scrutinized, laughed at by his own peers in his own field, and almost ostracized and decided to walk away for a little while. But now, all of this has now come full circle. And again, he has now been vindicated. Um, and when you look into the ancient Sumerian tablets, particularly into the Enuma Elishan, the Seven Tablets of Creation, and the Atrahasis epic, you discover something very interesting. There was a time period where there was a hominid on this planet, and at, at some point during that time period, according to these tablets, there was going to be a modification to this hominid. And how do we come to this? Well, there was this EGG working class being, they were also known as Anunnaki, but they were like the working class Anunnaki, according to the tablets. And they were working and doing labor for a very long time and very frustrated that, uh, with, the, with the workload. Uh, they were actually, according to the tablets, working on Mars. Uh, they would get they were mining for resources and working on civilization. They were also on Earth digging canals and everything else. Uh, and they decided they were going to have a coup against the kings of Earth, Enki and Lil Anu. And they actually encircled their campus where they were located. And there was this long talk that goes back and forth in this text uh, where they're, you know, negotiating whether they're going to fight or not fight. And at some point, they come to the agreement that they can take the existing hominid on this planet and add their essence to it. That is, for me, uh, the point in which genetic modification took place. There's also some information with, in regards to the Tower of Babel incident, where uh, Yahweh, who's in the, in the Bible, really is Enlil, and he comes back and he sees human beings building this tower uh, into heaven, and at that point, uh, there's a decision made that, wow, human beings can do whatever they want to do if they really live long enough and focus and, and join and unite. Uh, they can achieve anything. So I tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to destroy this tower, <laughs> and then I'm going to confuse their languages, spread them all out around the world, and then I think I'll shorten their lifespan too. Mm -hmm. And that's where you see in the Bible where lifespans were shortened to 120 years. My, my seed shall not abide in man. His years shall be 120. And so we see that there's this clear-cut uh, path that was taken hundreds of, maybe close to 200,000 years ago, in my personal opinion. It could be much sooner, but my opinion is, is taking it back to close to 200,000 years in which a genetic modification happened to the existing hominid. Our own cousins, our relatives that were already here, not an alien from outer space, but our own cousins were then genetically modified where they took out the telomere, uh, they took out the chromosome number two, and they actually fused chromosome number two together, and they put telomere caps on each end. Uh, and this shortened our lifespan. And also when now modern scientists have gone back to Genesis and looked at this, they say, wait a minute, this is an artificial mutation. Uh, we can't really figure out how it happened. It would take millions of years through natural evolution for this to happen. But we're estimating around 200,000 years, around the same time that I believe it happened uh, based on Sumerian tablets. So it's pretty interesting that we see that uh, mankind uh, around this time period was genetically modified. Chromosome number two was taken out and fused together. Telomere caps put on each end of those chromosomes. Now, what does that mean? A telomere cap contains genetic buffer material, 
And as your cells and DNA replicate, which happens every single day, it, sh it shares some of that information so that nothing gets lost in translation so that your cells and your body can probably duplicate so you can continue to live. However, with caps on the telomeres, what they've done is as the buffer material runs out in the telomeres, they get smaller and smaller and smaller until they run out of buffer material. Once that happens, your body begins the death process. And so by this method, they've shortened your lifespan. Now, scientists at Harvard have now taken mice and have experimented with this same technique on mice and were able to then stop the degradation of the telomeres on the mice, allowing them to live up to three times their normal lifespan. And so this is now a science that exists today, genetic modifications that exist today that we're capable of doing right now. And I believe personally that they just copied what they learned from the ancient past or heard about in the ancient past and started experimenting how can they duplicate it. So now today, we can genetically modify a, a, a human being. I think that we can actually stop this, the uh, shrinking of telomeres in humans, just like the Anunnaki could turn on or turn that off, because some people were granted longer lifespans. Well, how did they do that? Another modification. And so that's why it's important for, to have conferences like this where we actually come together and learn about this information and that we learn how to uh, you know, remember our ancient past, learn about what's happening around us right now, so that we can all unite and take back control of our planet. Because if we don't, they're going to start selling us time. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, this brings our ancient alien panels to an end. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Please put your hands together for our esteemed guests. Right. <clears throat> Extraterrestrials, antiquity, and evolution. That's right.